0: We are so glad that you're here today. This is our normal Wednesday night gathering for Graceway Baptist Church. Of course, I say normal with air quotes on it. It's uh, some people say our new normal and I really hope it's not. But I am grateful that we can still meet and we can do what we always do. And the great thing about what God has called us to do is we can do it anytime, anywhere and under just about any circumstances. And he's called us to proclaim his word, to pray to him, I think about Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly. And it says in the Apostles' Doctrine, well, we're doing that in spite of this virus. And in prayer, I hope you're praying for me. I'm praying for you and that we pray for one another. And in fellowship, we just have to find new ways to do that. And uh, it doesn't mean that there are not any ways to do it. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily substandard because our fellowship goes far beyond meeting in a building. Our fellowship is around the Word of God, around His truth, and in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is everywhere and lives in each one of us. And so we still enjoy that communion. And then the breaking of bread. And that makes me kind of sad because normally on this Friday, Good Friday we call it, we have our Passover Lord's Supper. And I'm really going to miss being together with you and observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But uh, one of these days we'll be able to do that again. And uh, we are already talking as a staff about some things that we might want to do on that first Sunday when we're able to meet together again. So we would appreciate your prayers about that. We have been looking in Psalm 78 and we covered the first eight verses last week. And we said that this idea of losing our children to the world and to secularism and uh, all the other things that go on is nothing new. This is something that is a continual generational fight. The devil wants our kids. Somebody uh, did a study one time about how many billions of dollars, and it's more than that now because this is probably at least 10 years old, how many billions of dollars that uh, is spent on advertising on things that are not even legal for our kids to uh, partake of. For example, They found that a lot of money was spent by the beer industry, the alcohol industry, to target children and to capture the imagination of children, and children aren't even uh, of age to drink. Uh, There were a lot of other things that would happen uh, that would uh, be advertised in order to try to get kids to say, I want this or I need this, knowing that if the kids will say, I want it, the parents will probably buy it. Some of that is neither here nor there. It doesn't really matter, but some of it is dangerous, and all of it illustrates the point that whereas Christians, sometimes we ignore our kids, sometimes we are not as intentional as we ought to be about teaching our children and shepherding them, or as John Rawson always says, pastoring our families, men. We all ought to know this. The devil really is intentional about getting your children targeting your children and trying to influence your children, and doing it while they are even young. So what is the correction for that? And last week, we looked at the first eight verses, and we talked about, number one, that we have to be interested in the things of God, because if we're not, there's a good chance our children won't be. We model that. We said that we have to be intentional about it. It's not just an accidental thing or something that we assume is going to take place because we have them in Sunday school or Awana or something. Parents have to take responsibility for this. We said that it has to be intergenerational. We can't just ignore the new generation and say, well, they do their thing, we do our thing, and we don't get it, and they don't get it, so we don't really interact. There's a big, big move to pull us apart in the family and in the church, and maybe one of the purposes of God during this virus is to force us to spend time together and to get to know one another and to interact with one another. And then we said, of course, it has to be internal. We're aiming for the heart. Parents, if all you're doing is aiming to correct the behavior of your children, that is far short of where God wants you to be. He said it's out of the heart that things proceed. That's where the issues of life are, Solomon said. And so we have to guard our heart, the real us. That's what you really ought to aim for. Now we're going to pick up at verse 9 and we're going to read what Asaph has to say and we're going to see some things that we need to and that we want to teach our children because if we don't, we do it to our own peril, to the peril of our society and uh, we've already seen some of this take place. I'll read it. You follow along in your Bible. Psalm 78 beginning at verse 9. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. Pardon me. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law, and forgot the works and His wonders that He had shown them. Marvelous things that He, God, did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. That's just a region of Egypt. He divided the sea, and caused them to pass through, and He made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime also He led them with the cloud, and at night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness, and He gave them drink in abundance as the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock, and caused waters to run down like rivers. Now, these things, as miraculous and wonderful as they are, these were things that had kind of been forgotten. And Asaph uses the children or the descendants of Ephraim as the example. Now, we don't know what the specific occasion was. It just tells us that they were armed and ready for battle. But when the time came to fight, they just didn't fight. It wasn't because there was a shortage of bows or arrows. It wasn't because they didn't have armor. It wasn't because they weren't organized. It wasn't because they didn't have a cause. There was a battle to fight. And they were ready for the battle. They just chose not to fight. That kind of reminds us a lot today of the way that we are. I am so disappointed and kind of disgusted with my generation and the way that we've turned out and the way that we raised our children. Why would I say that? Did you know that if you went back a hundred years, you would find families more intact and more stable? um, You know, all of those things that we look back and say, oh, the simpler times in the good old days and values being passed on to our children and families serving the Lord, all of those kind of things. And yet, if you think about it, back in 1920, were there any ministries for family? Were there any books about the family, I'm sure there were some. But by the time Sammy and I got married in 1984, you could go into any Christian bookstore, any of them, and you would find whole sections on marriage and whole sections on family. Great preachers and other uh, counselors and psychologists and other people started putting out books and video series and seminars, whole seminars, on having a happy marriage, on raising your children. Ministries like Focus on the Family grew up and they flourished during that time. In other words, my generation has had more resources on how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be good parents, how to raise children that would honor the Lord. We've had more of that than at any other time in history and look at us. You look back and you see the homeschool movement, the Christian school movement, all of these type of things didn't exist a hundred years ago, not in any organized form anyway. And now you look and see all of the alternatives, everything that is available, and what is happening. We're not doing very well with all of this. And it's also been a mystery to me as to why it is that we go to a bookstore if I use an old-fashioned term, I know there are not many of those anymore, and you would see volume after volume after volume about marriage and family. You go to the Word of God and go to the New Testament, how many verses are there that have to do with family and marriage? Well, on one hand, we could say everything has to do with that. It's about the gospel. It's about salvation. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about the golden rule. It's about the great commandment. All of those kind of things. The one another's of Scripture. There are so many of those. But when you get right down to it, the specific things mentioned about marriage, you don't find all that much. And I think the assumption in the New Testament was, just live for Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and apply the Word of God, and you'll do right by your children, you'll do right by your husband, you'll do right by your wife, because we're supposed to do this under the Lordship, of Jesus Christ. And yet with all of our resources, we're not doing very well. Maybe we need to get back to just some basic principles. Let's talk about these in Psalm 78. And let's begin thinking about what we looked at in verses 9 and following, that the first thing we want to do is actually and intentionally teaching our children to stand alone. What in the world am I talking about there? Well, the men of Ephraim they are ready and they are armed for battle and there's the expectation that they're going to fight. But at some point, AsAP and his audience would know what it was. We don't. These people that were skilled warriors decided not to fight. And Ephraim becomes kind of the symbol for unfaithfulness in the Old Testament. Who was Ephraim? Well, you remember that the twelve tribes of Israel were the sons of Jacob. But the numbers don't quite add up and something doesn't seem right because Ephraim wasn't a son of Jacob, was he? No, but he was a grandson. Ephraim and Manasseh were the children of Joseph. And Joseph, instead of having a tribe of Joseph, his two sons received the blessing. And so there is the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh and they would make up what normally would be the tribe of Joseph. Well, what did these people do here? They came to the point, equipped and armed, all kinds of knowledge, and yet they just didn't pull it off. Now, that's my point about my generation. Has there ever been a generation that was more equipped, had more teaching, and more resources? I mean, we've got the bows and the arrows and the armor and the strategy. We just don't do it. We turn back in the day of battle. And we are so afraid our children are not going to fit in that we let other people set the pace and set the agenda. And as parents, many times we spend our lives trying to keep up with other parents, trying to keep up with other people who do things with our children. It becomes a competition and we try to outdo everyone else. And so our kids grow up with the idea of being a part of the herd. And so they've got to run with the herd and be with the herd and look like the herd and do everything that the herd does. If Ephraim, here's my point, is not going to fight, who is? And if everybody just goes with the herd mentality, then all the other tribes do what Ephraim does. And if Ephraim fights, they fight. If Ephraim runs, they run. They just go along and go with the flow. I would contend that this verse is challenging Israel, and therefore challenging us, To teach our children to fight even when Ephraim doesn't. To stand up in the battle even when the others don't. And you may be there on the front lines of the battle and you may be taking the heat and everyone else may desert. Everyone else may go AWOL, we might say. What are you going to do? We want to teach our children to stand alone. To do what needs to be done. To rise to the occasion to have a cause bigger than themselves and to fight for what's fighting for and to stand up even if they have to stand alone. Because there is an enemy here, and the enemy here, enemy here is what I've already mean. It's the herd mentality. If you have a bunch of cattle or a bunch of sheep and one of them runs off of a cliff, are you going to run off of the cliff too? Are you going to go along with the flow, go along with the herd even to your own destruction? The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 2, "...you shall not follow the crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice." In other words, you don't testify in court to please the jury or to please the judge or to please the people in the courtroom, you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you don't follow after the crowd to do what's wrong and use the excuse that, well, everybody's doing it. It must not be that wrong. We've got to teach our children to stand up, to stand for what's right, to fight in the day of battle when, it, when the battle needs to be fought, and to do it alone if they need to do it. Don't be afraid, parents, that your child is going to be different than everyone else. Secondly, we find as we look at verse 11, we need to teach them to be grateful. You know, uh, we have a generation where our children know the, the uh, uh, price of everything, but the value of nothing. And the more they have, the more they want, and they don't take care of what they've got, and we all gripe about it, and we can't understand why they're like that. Well, we sort of taught them to be that way. We taught them that if you don't take care of it, if you lose it, if you break it, it's okay. Mom and dad will buy you something else or grandma and grandpa will buy you something else because we're scared to death that our children may not have what everyone else has, which is sort of related to point number one, isn't it? And when you look down here at what was going on, the idea with the tribe of Ephraim, not only did they turn back in the day of battle, even though they were well armed, but it also says that they forgot His works. They forgot His works. All of the wonders that He had done for them, the miracles that He had done, even to the point of the most climatic event in the Old Testament to the Jews was the parting of the Red Sea. That was what uh, saved Israel. There would be no Israel. And from our standpoint, there would be no Messiah had the Lord not saved the uh, Israelis from the Egyptians, by parting the Red Sea. That was the big event that happened. Well, Ephraim forgot about it. They kind of said, well, so what? What have you done for me lately? What are you doing for me now? And there was absolutely no sense of gratefulness. Do you see that in yourself? I see it in me. I've been raised in um, a pretty soft um, period of time, I suppose you would say. I mean, I haven't had to go to war. I haven't had to do without anything. I haven't had to miss meals. I haven't had to do any of those things that maybe even the World War II generation had to do. We had it all. We had entertainment and we had a lot of fun. And we uh, just, you know, took life and took it easy. And as a child, that's kind of a good thing. I don't think children ought to grow up with the cares and the worries of the world on them. Unfortunately, I don't think my generation ever really grew up. I think even though we're in our 50s and 60s, we're still trying to figure out what we're going to be when we grow up. And we still are after our toys. And we're still not really grateful for what we have. We don't have a sense of contentedness in the things that God has provided for us and we quickly forget all of the things that He has done. We forget the answered prayers. We forget the times when He brought us through sickness. We forget about all of the times when He provided money when we needed it. And we could go on and on and on. We're a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately generation. But according to what I read here in Psalm 78, at least we're not the first to be like that. And the tribe of Ephraim was bad about just forgetting everything that God did and discounting all of it. And the um, enemy here is just simply entitled it, entitlement. They were saying, well, why shouldn't God save us? After all, we're the Jews. We're Israel. Why shouldn't He save us? And this carries on in the Old Testament into the time of the prophets when the prophets are saying, because of your sin, God is going to raise up an enemy to judge you and especially in the southern kingdom of Judah, they said, well, how is God going to do that? We're His people, and we have the temple. That's never going to happen, and false prophets gave the people the wrong message, and people like Isaiah and Jeremiah were persecuted for telling the truth. Why were they saying that? We're entitled to stand as a nation. We're entitled to win our battles. We're entitled to be strong and free and prosperous, because after all, We are the children of God. How well did that work for them? Well, you find the Chaldean armies coming from Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and they ravaged Israel, especially Judah, and uh, destroyed the temple and all of that, remember? And then they were overrun by the Persian Empire, and then after that they were overrun by Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and after that they were overrun by the Romans. That covered a long period of time. You see, that entitlement mentality was not something that God was going to put up with. And that is something that we find in our society today. We find it in our country. We find people that think it's my right not to work. It's my right to get everything free from the government. And we're raising a generation like that. They don't learn to work. They don't learn to earn anything. In fact, This entitlement mentality was even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we uh, used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Why? Because there were people that had the idea that just because I'm a Christian and just because I'm a part of the church, even if I don't work, even if I'm nothing but a busybody, you ought to feed me. You ought to take up a love offering for me. You ought to do something for me. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong with helping people in need. There's nothing wrong with being gracious to people when that is called for. But when you start seeing the idea that I'm entitled and you're supposed to do this because of who I am, that is a dangerous thing. And Paul was warning the Thessalonica, uh, the Thessalonian church about that. And that's something that we as parents ought to be careful about as well. Are we raising spoiled brats who feel that they are entitled to something wah, 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 just because I want it? That doesn't bode well for the next generation. We're not doing our job in teaching them the way that they ought to live and how they ought to think. After all, they're going to be raising our grandchildren, aren't they? We better be careful about all of this. Thirdly, notice that Asaph is telling us that we need to teach them to follow God's clear leadership. He he mentions here that during the wilderness times, we call it the wilderness wandering, uh, actually they weren't just wandering around in the wilderness, they were being led every step of the way. The cloud by day and the fire by night. Cloud by day, fire by night. When the cloud would move, they would move. When the cloud would stop, they would stop. And they didn't move again until the leadership of the Lord became very clear, taking them through that time in the wilderness. You see, after they would not go across Jordan into the promised land, and God said, this generation's not going to see it, they couldn't go in there if they wanted to. They were to die off in the wilderness, and the fire and the cloud... Were guiding them everywhere that they went for that 40 years until it was time to go in with the new generation. But understand, even in Israel's failure, God did not abandon them. He continued to lead them and He led them very clearly and very definitely. Now, we're not looking around for following the clouds. And in Oklahoma, you would be all over the place, wouldn't you? We're not looking to follow fire by night. But what is it that we are looking for? And I made this point, teach them to follow the clear, the clear leadership of God. You know, there are a lot of things that go on in Christianity where people say, God said this or God told me this or this is the way you're supposed to go and a lot of things like that. How do we ever know that? Here's the key. We go to the clear teaching of the scripture. The Bible is our uh, cloud by day that we follow. It's our pillar of fire by night that we follow. In fact you think about what it says in Psalm 119, in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And um, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. This is how we follow the Lord and His clear teachings. We need to know the word of God so that we can discern whether that feeling or that intuition that we have about something is good or bad or right or wrong. Some of them are dead wrong. Some of them may be very good and wise. And some of them just may not really matter or be all that important at all. But you and I don't have the ability to discern that apart from the clear teaching of the Word of God. Somebody made this statement, I think it was Vadi Bakum. He said, God told me is no, uh, never trumps what the Bible says. If the Bible says it, that's God speaking. And we've got to weigh everything in light of what the uh, Bible has to say. It is the final rule and authority for everything that we do. How does it square up with Scripture? Which means we need to know the Scripture. If the Scripture is not known, then it can't be a light to your path and a lamp and to your feet. But when it is known, it will guide you, and it will guide you clearly. You see, the enemy here that we're fighting is just plain old mysticism. That was the heresy of Gnosticism. Oh, I know what the Bible says, and I know what the basic teachings of Christianity are, but I've got special gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge, Gnosticism. There's a deeper mystical thing. It can never be measured. It can never be proven or disproven. It's just one of those things that we just follow and we're led into error by all of that. We stand alone on the Word of God. Teach your children to follow the clear leading of God and that is the Scripture, the Word of God. And fourthly, teach them about God's faithfulness. When you get down to the 15th verse, it says uh, He split the rocks in the wilderness. You remember that? The people were saying, Why have you brought us out here just to die in Egypt? We're thirsty. We don't have enough water. And you remember when they got water from the rock. Remember that? Well, here a little bit of amplification. The rock split and the waters came out. Now, understand that uh, Moses was not just leading 10 or 20 or 30 people. Somewhere between 1 and 3 million, most people think, plus all of the herds that they might have had. And to water them would be significant. And notice here that these verses are written in a picturesque way to give us the idea that the rock didn't just give a trickle of water like a water fountain. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance. Look at this. Like the depths. He also brought streams streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Can you imagine rivers showing up in the desert by that rock that followed them? And you know what the apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that that rock was Christ. There was the ever-present savior bringing streams just like he brings living water to us. He was bringing water to them as well, showing his love and his grace and his faithfulness. It's also an amazing thing to realize that when this first generation of Israelis were in the desert wandering around, well, being led around for those 40 years, God never abandoned them. I think about the New Testament scripture where Paul said to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Oh, that is true, over and over and over again. And we need to teach our children of the faithfulness of God. We need to tell them those stories of answered prayer, those stories of miraculous things that God did for us and how He provided for us. We need to talk about, above all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, that's wonderful news. A faithful God for unfaithful people. An extraordinary God for ordinary people. This is the God that we serve, and this is what we have got to teach our children. And the enemy of all of this is just plain old discontent. You see, when Eve was there talking to the serpent, she wasn't enthralled by all of the trees God had given them, She was focused on that one thing, that one thing that she couldn't have but desperately wanted. And boy, will the devil ever point those things out to you. If you were to get a million dollars today and were able to live a million dollar lifestyle, I promise you it wouldn't be long before that would be normalized and you're jealous of the people that can live a two million dollar lifestyle or a 50 million dollar lifestyle. Everybody has their limits, don't they? There are some millionaires that wish they could live like billionaires. And billionaires are still not content because it's human nature to be discontented and to want what we cannot have. So we need to teach our children to be content. So think about these things that we've talked about today. If we really want to gain and capture this generation for Christ, then we need to teach them how to stand alone we need to teach them how to be grateful for things. That's one of the reasons you say the blessing before you eat your food, to be grateful for what God has provided. We need to teach them to follow God's clear teaching. They need to know the Word of God and what it says and how to follow it. And we need to teach them about the faithfulness of God. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh... Lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And that really is what advertising is. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And that's also what happens when we look at other people and we covet what they have. We look away from what God has given us and we want what someone else has. We're jealous or envious. And Paul tells us that covetousness is actually idolatry. What happens in all of that? Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I see it. It's something that I want. I can't live without it. And then the idea that if I had that, I would be secure. And I would be somebody. And it would really complete my life. And all that does is cause us to look away from the God who loves us with an everlasting love, the Father who, who has promised to provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory, who's given us all things richly to enjoy. All of those things are in the Bible. And what do we do? We look away and we look to someone else or something else as the source of our happiness. And when we allow these things to happen, whether it is you or me or our children, don't be surprised when something happens that was prophesied. Our children become like sheep and follow the herd, or so do we. They feel entitled. They want everything to be free. We're kind of seeing that in some of these elections that are coming up, aren't we? And we do what is right in our own eyes. And then we blame God for the consequences. We blame God for the consequences of our own actions. And we overlook His faithfulness. I'll close by reading out of Proverbs 30 verse 11. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off of the earth, and the needy from among men." Friends, I think we're living in that generation and we're raising a generation to even be worse. And God has given you children and given you grandchildren and He's given our church, younger people, that all of us can help and shepherd and testify of these things. This is for all of us. And as we do that, we've got the perfect opportunity now to counter what the enemy has done and what we have cooperated with for the last half century, if not longer. God's ways are not our ways, but oh, are they good. His ways are always good. We should follow Him, and we should follow His wisdom. So my prayer is that the Lord will bless you, and I thank you for taking the time to watch this. And as I said at the very beginning, it may be different, it may be weird, it may be strange, And yet it's also the same because we've got the Lord's truth to proclaim to all generations. Father, as we take this to heart, bless us. Help us to remember it and help us to live by it. Help us to correct what's wrong. Help us to affirm what's right. And may we march on for the glory of Jesus until you return. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and thank you once again.